So you've had a moment somewhere along the way, talking about stranger things, where you've had a, a friend come up and tell you a story. You watched the news or you read, it's usually like a Yahoo News article if you ever get on there and heard this story or read it somewhere and you went, that's crazy, right? Like, like I, don't know, I, don't, I don't know if I believe that. I mean, the news is reporting it, but my mind just cannot wrap itself uh, around that concept. There's a little girl in India. Her name is Shurya Darji. Forgive me if you have Indian heritage, and I butchered that. But I read this story about her, and, and I'm reading it going, I, I just don't know if this is true, even though other news agencies have reported it. There, there's been some pictures out. She's a 12-year-old girl that had over 1,000 ants crawling out of her ear. Right? Like, and you're like, okay, now, and so you lean in a little bit, and you're like, okay, now what? Tell me about this. Yeah, I mean, she's a cute little girl. And, and so the doctors apparently ha- have done everything. that They've tried all kinds of stuff. They've tried to drown the ants with antiseptic. They've gone in with cameras and tried to pull them out and figure out what's going on. The doctor said, we have, we have no clue where they're coming from. There's not, there's not like an ant nest or bed in her head anywhere. We have no clue where they're coming from. It's been going on for some period of time. She's been in school, and, and as she's sitting in school, kids start making fun of her because as she's in there, ants start crawling out of her ear. They've done everything from modern medicine to Indian witch doctors to figure this thing out. And I'm reading the story, and, you're, and, and, like, and I think you're probably where I am. We're like, for real? Right? Like, okay, three ants got in someone's head and, and crawled out. A thousand, a thousand ants, no, no one understands where I, I read these things. And it's, it's the same feeling. I don't know if you've ever been down to San Antonio to the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum. Or, I mean, when I was young, when you guys were young, there, there was also the, the TV show. You know, and, and they give you some of these, and you're like, okay, I believe that, I believe that. And then there's that one story or that one thing in the museum piece. And, and I can hear that guy on the TV going, Ripley's Believe It or Not. Not. No, I don't. Like, no. Well, there's some passages in the Bible that are like that. There's some passages of Scripture that we read, we go, well, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know about that. That just seems outside of the bounds of even where my imagination could go. I, I mean, if you get into apologetics, you, you'll start to read. There, there are people who uh, are atheists, they, they are anti-Bible, and they will, they will argue and point out, they'll go, you know, the story of Jesus' resurrection is, is, is the exact same story of Mithra, the pagan god that was thousands of years before, and all the Christians did was just copy that story. And, and if, you, if you hear those things, you go, what, wait, what, really? You start going, well, I, I, don't, I, I don't know. People read stories in the Bible about healings, and most of us have never experienced one, certainly not in, in biblical proportions, you know, like you never went to the doctor because you had like pink eye and you, like, like Jesus spit in mud and like, you know, put some on your eye and all of a sudden it was gone, right? And so we read those, we go, I've never experienced those, but I just, I just don't know. And then there's these stories in the Bible, they're, they're, they're grand vacation Bible school stories of Jericho. You remember the story of Jericho? Walled city, no one can penetrate. Israelites march around it seven days. On the seventh day, they blow their trumpets and all of the walls fall down. Now, if you grew up in church, 
You read that story and go, oh, yeah, story of Jericho. Somebody who has not grown up in church goes, now wait, you, you want me to believe that a walled city fell down because they blew their trumpets really loud? If you're not a church person, you're probably leaning in going, yes, thank you for talking about this. But a guy gets thrown out of a boat, a giant fish swallows him for three days, hanging out in the belly of a giant fish, and then spits him up on the shore. Story of Jonah. I mean, every elementary school kid in the church has made their whales. They've talked about the stories. But people outside of this room go, you're asking me to, to stretch my imagination. You're asking me to stretch my, my belief and faith much further than, I, than I'm comfortable with. But let, let's just start here as we're going to journey through some of these stories and, and understand this. Where you begin plays a large role in where you end. Your worldview, what you believe about God and, and, and the world in general, the natural versus the supernatural, plays a large part in, in how you accept stranger things. So let me give you an example. And I've told this story quite a bit, but it's, just, it's a perfect example, an, an illustration to help us understand that. I was on a plane several years ago flying. I don't, I don't even know where we were flying to. And, and I'm also, you know, pastors always get and they talk about how they lead people to Jesus, you know, on the plane, it's like, I, I, just wanna, I just wanna put my headphones and not talk to people. And so, but, but this one moment, this, this guy and I start this conversation and he asks, well, what do you do? Which I hate that question. Because as soon as I say, pastor, youth minister, the conversation shuts down. People are like, oh, cool. You know, great, three hours on the plane with this guy. You know? And so I usually say something like, I work with teenagers and families, you know, so that I can at least talk to them a little bit more before they shut me out. So this guy came out that as a pastor, and, and so he just a great guy. We had, we're having this good conversation, and he said, let, let me, he goes, I, I just don't understand. And he said, you seem, we conversation for a while, you seem like a fairly intelligent person. I mean, you're not, you don't, you don't seem like, you know, a, a Bible thumper, crazy person. He said, but I don't understand how, he said, you really believe that there was a giant boat and, and, and two of every animal came on the boat. I said, no, I don't believe that. The scripture says that there were multiple pairs of some animals. So it's actually, I believe more than two of some came on. And he's like, what? what? He's like, yeah, you got to read the story. And so I'm, and I'm not helping myself, right? And, he, and he's like, I just, I just, I just don't, I don't understand how someone who is even remotely intelligent could believe something like that. And I said, well, well let's, let, let's, let me just say this. Our worldviews are probably different. Where we start determines a lot of times where we end. And I said, do you, do you believe that there's anything out there that is supernatural? And he said, what do you mean? I said, I, said, I mean, some people believe in ghosts and things like that. I, I don't. I said, but, but that would be supernatural. Do, do you believe that there are some things that happen in the world, miraculous type things, even if you don't believe in God, do you believe that there's some things that we cannot understand or explain with a natural conclusion that occasionally things happen, they're outside the realms of, of a natural interpretation, they're supernatural. And he said, well, yeah, I mean, I guess so. I said, okay. I said, I do too. So I believe in the supernatural. And I believe that God is supernatural. He is above the, 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 the natural order. He created it. And as creator, he can do whatever he wants because he is God. So I said, I do believe that there's a God. I believe there's a lot of evidences for it. I said, I also believe that God 
in all of his power and all of his might as a supernatural being can put as many animals on a boat as he wants to. I said, now, do you want me to draw out the boat and explain how? I don't know if I could do that, but it doesn't mean that I don't believe that it could, could happen because I start with a presupposition, a worldview that supernatural things exist. And he looked at me and he goes, okay, I can follow that. I can get on board with that. I may not agree with you, but I don't think now, I guess not everybody that believes in the Bible is crazy. Okay, I could see that. If you have a naturalistic worldview, you have to have a, a black and white answer for everything. There are going to be some stories in the scripture that you go, man, I really, really wrestle with that. But if you come with a supernatural view, they go, hey, this is a story of a God who is bigger than my understanding it allows you then to dive into the scripture and change your faith perspective on what you're reading. So that's going to be helpful to us today and for the next five weeks. And really, anytime you engage the scripture, the more naturalistic you are, the, the more difficult. And I am not a person at all that says, well, you just got to believe it by faith. I love evidences. I love apologetics. What I've learned along the way is that there are so many evidences and so many uh, truths that line up with the scripture that makes it actually easier for me to believe it. It shortens the gap of faith for me because there are so many evidence that go, man, this went to the court of law. I think, I think it would side on the side of the Bible. I know we're not going to get into all those. That's a whole other series for a whole other time. But not only do we have these strange stories in the Bible, we also have these stories sometimes that make us like uncomfortable. That, I mean, we, we go, man, I, I don't, I, I, that doesn't seem like the God did this. It doesn't seem like the God I read about in other places. And man, is God loving or is he, is God like all loving and graceful or is he like just and vengeful? The answer is yes. He's both. Now we're going to see that in 2 Kings chapter 2. So if you don't know where that is, um, about, oh, I don't know, a fourth of the way through your Bible, you'll see First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. So if you get into Samuels or Kings or Chronicles, you're going to be right there. And I want you to go to 2 Kings chapter 2 for this Stranger Things story. Now, this story, if you haven't ever read this story before, we're about to read, just, you're going to be blessed this morning. This is fantastic. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23, we have already previously to picking up this passage of Scripture been introduced to a, a, a new prophet on the scene named Elisha. I say it that way because we're going to talk about another prophet who was right before Elisha named Elijah. Okay, so there's two guys, Elijah, Elisha. Elisha, in chapter 2, verse 23, this is what happens. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord, and two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there, he returned to Samaria. Bless God, right? Like, like, like you read that, and you're like, what? I don't know what just happened. Like, I was reading about prophets and cleaning water up and raising people from the dead, and then we get this, this story and, and again, if you're just reading this cursory, I, I, there were so many great YouTube videos that atheists made that I wanted to show, to show the perspective, but none of them were appropriate. Uh, but man, were they funny. Uh, you know, and they're all 
this old guy, this old crotchety old prophet's walking down the road, and some, some kids come out, and they're like, hey, Baldy, and he's like, die by bears, and then bears come out and rip their heads off, and he's like, you know, that's the picture we get, right? I mean, we're like, what just happened, and why is this here? So, again, more teaching rather than preaching, because we have to go back and, and understand the context from where this perspective is coming from. The historical narrative that's being written is going to help us understand what is happening and why it's here. And and we have to understand that we're reading this 3,000 some odd years later after it happened on a whole other continent and a whole other culture. And there's some things that we're going to have to go back in time to understand for it to make sense to us. But the historical narrative actually starts with Elijah rather than Elisha. So you can go back through the very end of 1 Kings, and pick up Elijah's story. Elijah was, man, he was like, if there were, if, if you were taking the prophets of God and putting them out on a, scale, on a scale, pound for pound, best prophet, Elijah's right up there as like heavyweight champion of the world. I mean, Elijah does some incredible things. Elijah causes a drought for three and a half years to make God's point. Elijah is one of the few people in Scripture who raised someone from the dead. So Elijah has quite the reputation. There, one king sends 50 soldiers out to get Elijah, and Elijah calls fire out of heaven and destroys all 50 soldiers, burns them up, not once, but twice. So Elijah is this prophet that people are like, the power of God man, resides all over Elijah. He, he made the Jordan River part and cross and again, if you are a Bible scholar like the people who know Elijah's story, the Jewish people, that sends a message to them. He is, he is on par with Moses. Moses and Elijah both parted water and, and walked across. He's also the guy who, if you remember the story, the prophets of Baal are kind of in, in, in the land and in Israel and, and everybody's worshiping this pagan God and Elijah's all by himself. And he's the one who has the showdown with the prophets of Baal. And he says, hey, here's what we're going to do. You get a bull, I'll get a bull. You call upon Baal and ask for a burnt offering and let Baal out of heaven burn up your bull. And then I'll do the same thing for Yahweh, for God. And so the prophets of Baal, man, they get, they get a bull out there. There's over 300 of them. And, and all day long, they're chanting and praying and they're cutting themselves. And, and Elijah, it's a great story. Elijah mocks him. He's like, well, maybe your God's like on vacation. Maybe, or maybe he's taking a nap. And nothing happens all day long. And then Elijah gets his bull. He digs a trench around the altar, has him pour so much water on top of it to saturate it that the trench fills up with water, prays, and fire comes out of heaven and and licks up all of the water and destroys the bull. Elijah has some street credibility. You know what I'm saying? Elijah is the guy. And so right before this moment happens, Elisha has been following Elijah. He's the apprentice. He is the the heir apparent to to the heavyweight champion of the world. And Elijah's ministry comes to to an end in a a truly Elijah-esque way. He doesn't die. A whirlwind of fire out of heaven that looks like a chariot comes down, takes Elijah up, and he doesn't die. He just is whisked off into the sky and disappears. That's, that's That's a pretty pretty big set of shoes to follow, right? I mean, to step into. And so Elisha's like, hey guys, I'm next. <laughs> and they're like, okay, sure you are. You know, you're, you're no Elijah. 
So in the narrative of this, Elijah has just left. Elisha is now on the scene. And so the writer gives us two moments that happen in Elisha's life back to back. And one of the reasons why we get these stories is to help the reader understand, hey, Elisha did receive the double portion from Elijah that he asked for. The Spirit of God does rest on him. And so right before this story of these these small third graders on a field trip to get eaten by bears... Elisha is in the city of Jericho, and Jericho's in trouble because their water sources become polluted. People are getting sick, dying, crops are not growing well. And Elisha comes in and, and, and in a miracle drops some salt into the, the spring and, and miraculously cleans up the water and saves the city. So the writer gives us this, hey, look, Elisha it, it does have the Spirit of God on him. And you know what else happened after Elisha... Uh, miraculously cured the water. He was headed to Bethel and some kids came out and they started mocking him and he just cursed them in the name of Yahweh. And just by Elisha's saying, hey, don't talk about God that way, two bears came out of the woods. So see, the, the, the picture we're getting here is a story, are two stories that say, hey, Elisha is a prophet of God and you need to listen to him. He, he does have the spirit of God on him and he is going to speak on behalf of God and what he's going to say is very, very important. But that doesn't help us, with again, with a third-grade field trip, right? Like, we're still going, okay, there, there's, there's other ways God could have showed, like, you know, his power and that Elisha was in charge rather than, you know, a bear feast. But what we don't understand is the historical significance of what's happening. When you go back to 2 Kings and we read that, that Elisha is on his way up to Bethel, the reader understood something that you and I don't. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 12, and we're not going to read it, I'm going to tell you what happened. A major change in the life of the Jewish people happened. Right before 1 Kings 12, you had, let me give you a little history lesson. We had King David, if you've ever heard of him, one of the greatest, most powerful kings Israel's ever had. Second king, Saul was first, then King David. When David dies, he's expanded the kingdom to its greatest reach. And his son, Solomon, comes to lead. And Solomon is known for his wisdom. And Solomon becomes wealthy, and and Israel has peace, and everything's going well. When Solomon dies, the kingdom is split in two by two kings, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Jeroboam becomes the king of the northern kingdom, Israel, and and Rehoboam becomes king of the southern kingdom. It's called Judah. So we used to be all Israel. Now it's Israel and Judah. Now, Jerusalem, the capital city where the temple is, rests in Judah, in the southern kingdom. So Jeroboam, the king of the northern kingdom, now they have this, 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 this split to avoid a, a civil war, to avoid anybody going, well, hey, Judah is real. I mean, they got Jerusalem. That's really it. Jeroboam sets up two cities, Dan, and take a guess what the other one is, Bethel, that become pagan centers of worship. And so Jeroboam, the king, says, listen, everybody, you don't need to go down to Jerusalem anymore. And we're Israel. We don't need to go down to Judah. Forget those guys. They didn't want to come with us. And, and you know what? You don't have to go worship down at the temple. In fact, that's a long way. You know, it's not like, I almost said I-35. That wouldn't have been helpful to anybody. It's not like there's a superhighway, you know, that doesn't have construction on it all the time. It's headed down to Jerusalem. I mean, this is a trip anytime you go down there. It might take you a month or so. So you know what? In our own country, we've got two cities you can choose from, 
and he put two golden calves in there. So they were not worshiping Yahweh God. He put golden calves and said, you can go worship at our new worship centers with our new gods. And the, and the country of Israel begins to fall further and further from God's plan. So where Elisha is headed to Bethel is this pagan capital. It is full of people who do not worship Yahweh. In fact, historically, we know that they were opponents of Yahweh. This, the, the, these, these boys that are out there, and we'll talk about who they are in a second, that, that are out jeering at this prophet of God who is, who is now the spokesperson for the one true God. This is not a one-time experience. Bethel has had problems with God over and over again. If you go back into 1 Kings 13, there's an unnamed prophet, and he goes to Jeroboam and gets on to Jeroboam about this pagan worship and causes a miracle curse, withers Jeroboam's arm. And this is a whole other book ahead of time to say, hey, clean up your act. Get the pagan worship centers out of here. You need to worship God. And it's just disobedience, 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 disobedience. And it's not just disobedience as in, hey, we didn't go to church today. We didn't go to worship. It's more than that. It's we are going to worship false gods, and we are going to put them up against the one true God, and we're going to do battle back and forth. This is a bad, bad place. And they do not, they do not get it. You have the, the withering of Jeroboam's arm. You have this moment. They don't even get it after this. Go, go to Amos chapter 17. I'm sorry, Amos chapter 7. There's no 17. Amos chapter 7. So again, this, we're fast-forwarding to the future, but I just want you to see the, the, where Bethel is and what kind of city this place is. And, and Amos comes, and he, said, he comes to another prophet who's a false prophet in Bethel, and basically in Amos 7, he says, hey, you've got to get your act together. The city needs to get rid of the pagan idolatry. They should worship God. If you don't, God is going to send another country in here, and, he's, and they're going to wipe you out. And you know what the response was? Amos, take your message somewhere else. Get out of here. We don't want to hear from you. With your, woe is me, bad things are coming, Debbie Downer, take that, and why don't you go back south? And here's what, here's what Amos says from God. Therefore, after this, oh, here, look in verse 16. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. You're telling me to leave? Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line and you yourself shall die in an unclean land and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Some heavy words, right? I mean, that is not seeker sensitive at all. You know, a pastor stands up and says, listen, if y'all don't get your acts together, your wives are going to become prostitutes to a foreign country. Let's pass an offering plate, right? I mean, be, <laughs> what? But, I mean, but it's warning upon warning upon warning. I love Rico Tice. He's a, a uh, Englishman, and he tells a story about when he was in Australia. And he says, I went down to Australia and was, was meeting with a buddy, and, and they were going to go swim in the ocean. And he said, I started taking my shirt off, and I, I had my swimsuit on. I was headed to the beach, and my buddy stopped me, and he said, whoa, 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 where are you going? And he said, I told him, I'm going, going swimming. And he said, you not see the signs? 
And it signs up all over the place. They were, they were shark warning signs. Similar like this. Shark, shark side of inner water at own risk. And, the, and he says, ah, what, what are the chances that I'm going to be eaten by a shark? I mean, I'm not going to go out that far. And his friend said this to him. He said, well, I understand. He said, but you've got to make a decision. You've got to make a decision as to if those signs are there for your safety or if they're to ruin your fun. He said, I didn't go swimming (laughs) that day. I mean, for me, I mean, we've made it very clear um, a couple weeks ago how I feel about sharks, right, and and the ocean. Again, I'd say a couple weeks, I don't go into the ocean because I don't ask sharks to come to my house. I don't go into theirs. I feel like it's it's a fair deal. If I see a sign like that, I'm not even going to the beach, right? I mean, staying in the hotel or something like that. I want no, no part of it. The sign, there's warning. And Bethel is the city that has had warning upon warning upon warning, profit upon profit upon profit. They end up falling to Assyria. If the foreign country does come in and take them over after, after the Amos event. But we have this city that Elisha's walking to that is the, the bad of the bad. That they, they, are, they hate God, and as the prophet of God walks into the city, we find, quote, unquote, small boys. That, that's, where, that's where one of our problems comes, right? Like we think, again, it's, you know, it's a, the Sunday school class was outside, and they saw a guy, an old guy, and he was bald. And they're like, yeah, he's bald. And they, you know. Well, here's the thing. That in reality, that's probably not the best translation of the word. Uh, there's two words there. Uh, one, the first word is a word that means small, young, or smallest, uh, and, and that is why some of the, our translations translate the way it does. The next Hebrew word is the word na'ar. Now, na'ar is sometimes translated in Scripture as child. So young and child, they go, okay, small boys. But if you go back into the Hebrew and, and you look at how that word is translated most often, child is not even... the, the top two ways it's translated. The number one way it's translated is servant. The second way that it's translated most is young men. So most likely, it's probably not, not a fair translation to, I mean, I guess it's a fair translation. You could do that, but I don't think it's probably the best translation. Here's a couple of reasons why. That word na'ar, young men that we get boys here, is also used of Mephibosheth's uh, servant Zeba. Zeba had 15 sons, and he was na'ar, a young man or a servant. And the same word used for a guy who had 15 children. Now, that means, again, he wasn't in fourth grade with 15 children. You go back to the story of Ruth, Boaz puts a guy in charge of all of his fields and all of his workers. And the guy that's in charge of all of, of Boaz's uh, workers and, and job site is a na'ar, same word. So it makes us uncomfortable when we read the English translation and go, well, there are a bunch of small boys out there. Most likely it was young men. And we do get the word young in front of young men. So my guess is you're probably talking about teenage, young to older teenage guys. But here's the other thing. We know that there are at least 42 of them because the scripture records what happens to 42. There's at least 42 of them out there. So, you know, again, the the idea that, hey, they're just out, you know, playing baseball and here comes a, an old prophet, and they start mocking him. They get in trouble for it. Mo, most scholars believe that this was, this was a staged type thing. They were there for a purpose. They, they are there causing problems. One person put it this way. Where do 42 boys show up accidentally? 
They're probably there outside of the city. They have this worldview and this ideology from their schooling systems, from their families, that God is bad. And here comes Elisha, and they know who Elisha is. Because when they say, go on up, you bald head, they use the exact same word, go on up, as was used for Elijah when he went on up into heaven. So most people believe that this is not just a a random group of kids out playing. It's a group of people who are theologically savvy. They are young men. They're the, the next generation of leaders in the city, the next generation of, really, if you want to put it this way, God haters, idolatry lovers. And they're the guys that are standing in line to lead next. And here comes the prophet of God who represents Yahweh. And they're not mocking Elisha and his bald head because Elisha has 60 more years of ministry. Elisha's not 90 years old walking with a cane, an old man. He's probably not much older, if older, than the young men that, he's having, that, that are attacking him. This bald head, he could have been prematurely bald, and we don't know. Uh, that was also just, an, we know that was a, a major insult in the Greek, Greek days and Roman days, which are right around the corner. So they're insulting him, but they're not really insulting him as they're insulting God. Because it's your ideology against my ideology. It's our idols against God. And so this attack has nothing to do with some, some innocent boys playing and making fun of an old man. They are theologically savvy next generation leaders that are pitting their idolatrous worship against Yahweh. And when they start mocking him, again, it's important to know, Elisha doesn't do anything but turn around and curse them in the name of God. God decides the ramifications of what happened, and two bears come out. Now, I'm okay with that. You may not be. But here's the other thing, too. Just, and I'm not trying to sanitize the story. I'm not trying to put God in a, in a better light. Honestly, I'll tell you what I believe. If God wanted to send 100 bears to eat every one of those kids, that's God's prerogative, not mine. But the scripture here says that, in verse 36, that, that two she-bears came and tore the young boys. In English, we read that and we go, ooh, that's kind of violent. The word there, tore, the, the Hebrew word, means to divide. I'll I tell you what I think happened. Because, I, listen, if there's two bears and 42 kids get eaten, there's a lot of really slow kids. I, I mean... <laughs> like, I cannot get away from that bear. I mean... You can't outrun 20 other, I mean, even if the bear splits you in half and one goes after 21, you can't outrun everybody else. Like, and maybe not. Maybe God like, has sent some steroid-ridden bears and they're like shooting lasers out of their eyes and like, you know, I, I don't know. But you know what I think happened? The word, the word means divide. I think as they're mocking God, I think two bears came on the scene and the group split. They took off running for their lives. I, I don't, I don't, I mean, maybe one or two of them got eaten. Who knows? Maybe all 42 got eaten. I don't know. But the, the Scripture doesn't say they died. It just says that it tore, and we, the translators say tore 42 boys. It divided the group. And again, I'm not trying to desensitize it. I'm, I'm totally okay. God wiped them out. He's God. I'm not. I, I just follow what he says. But I think probably what happened is as these boys are mocking God, God said, all right, you know what? Watch this. And the bears show up, and kids are like, ah! And they take off running to make the point, to make the point that God is God. So what do we do? Well, here's the lesson we learned from this, and it's a lesson we've all known. It's a lesson you've been trying to teach your kids since the day they were born, and it's this. 
there's blessings for obedience and there's ramifications for disobedience. Right? That's not rocket science. You know that inherently. You don't, you don't even need to be a follower of Jesus. You don't need to have read your Bible to know that there are blessings for obedience and ramifications for disobedience. You've been teaching your kids that since the moment they were born because that's the way life works. If you're disobedient at your job, you will get fired. If you're disobedient to your homeowners association, you will be fined. If you're disobedient to the police officers of the law, you will be put in jail. If you're disobedient to God, there will be ramifications. Now, here's the thing. We look at this story and we go, man, I can't believe a God would call a bear out to eat 42 kids. Again, I don't know if he did, but this is not a God who is just arbitrarily angry. This is a group of people who over and over and over and over and over again have been disobedient, given God the middle finger and said, you know what? We don't care keep sending your prophets. We don't care. We're going to do what we want to do. And at some point along the way, ramifications come. And if two bears come out of the woods to try to grab some attention of some young leaders to say, hey, if you don't shapen up, Assyria is going to come and take your entire country and burn your cities to the ground and take you to be slaves if you don't get it your act together, I think that's a pretty fair deal. And we look at it and go, God, it's so tough. Well, maybe he's not. I mean, if you got, a Bible, you got your Bible, go, to, go over to Leviticus. We don't get to Leviticus very much. That's a hard book. Leviticus chapter 26. This is the law. This is what the Israelites, maybe not the people of Bethel at this point, have, have had, but their ancestors did. Now, again, this is not a part of Scripture, but like in my Bible, I, I get these little headings along the way, kind of help you. T- you know, one of my chapter, beginning of chapter 26, it says blessings for obedience. That's what the first 13 verses are going to be about. And then the ne- in verse 14, there's a little heading that says punishment for disobedience. Look at Leviticus 26, 21, under this idea of punishment for disobedience. Here's what the law says. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. Verse 22, and I will let loose the wild beast against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. I mean, they should have been on the bare lookout at this point. <laughs> I mean, this should not have been a surprise when bears, they should have been like, oh yeah, they talked about that in class. I mean, the, the law said this is, not, this is not God's arbitrary plan. God's not just like angry. Lightning bolts out of head. It is a strategic mission of God to redeem these people, to send them prophets. But just like some of us, they didn't care. And at some point along the way, there are ramifications for disobedience. Somewhere along the way, if you continue to choose, make choices, they go contrary to the way God created you. There's bad things are going to happen. It doesn't mean that your life is going to be rainbows and butterflies if you follow Jesus. Following Jesus is difficult. But blessings come and ramifications come for disobedience. It's it's a lesson from the beginning of Scripture. So what do we do? Well, let me just say this. First thing, and I try to put in a way you might remember, I just put up there, stop and start. What does that mean? 
means we, don't have to, we, we probably don't have to have a long discussion. You're, you and I are grown adults. Even if you have not been walking closely with the Lord, you could probably, if I hand you a sheet of paper and I say it's totally anonymous, nobody will know, hey, what's going on in your life that is disobedient to God's plan? Most of us could probably find something, some bigger than others. Stop. Start being obedient. You know, I'm not going to jump into all kinds of different ideas because I don't know what the Lord has been doing in your life, but I do believe that the Lord has been working in your life. The Holy Spirit has, has pricked your conscience. There's been some things along the way. There's been a sermon you heard. There's been a, a, a passage of Scripture that you read, maybe just accidentally. There's been something that happened along the way, and God went, look, I'm trying to get your attention. I've sent modern-day prophets, people who are speaking on behalf of me. I've put some circumstances around. Some bears have come out of your woods, and you did not realize that it was me sending those bears to get your attention to say, stop. Stop being disobedient. Stop sinning and start living the obedient life. Not because I'm God and I'm mad and I want you to do exactly what I say or I'm going to bring she-bears out of the woods to get you, but because I love you and I created you and I know how life works because I started life and I want you to experience blessing. I want your time on this earth to be the greatest that it possibly can be and I want to have a relationship with you so that when this time on earth ends that we spend eternity in heaven together. It's not because I want your life to be miserable. I'm not putting the warning shark signs out because I want to end your fun. I'm doing it because I know that life is better when you have all your limbs and haven't been bitten by a shark, right? I mean, I know life is better when you don't have relational chaos. I know life is better when you have finances that, that are being uh, driven by biblical principles, I know that life is better when, when, when you don't have gossip in your life. I know life is better when you're not looking over the shoulder because you've been stealing from the company. I know life is better when, 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 you've, when you forgive people, when you practice unconditional love. I know that life is better, and you do too because you've experienced it at times. And so God says, listen, there's blessings for obedience, there's ramifications for disobedience, and we get that picture in the story of Elisha. Jericho repents gets clean water. Bethel continues to do their thing and ends up being taken over by Assyria. It's the message of Scripture. It's pretty clear. Stop what, I don't know what it is. You know what it is. Stop. Jesus can't stop. Start being obedient. Replace whatever it is, the choices you're making that are disobedient to God and replace them with choices that are obedient. Now, here's the second thing. You got to know the Word. You got to know what obedience means, and it's, it's here. Hey, I'm going to give you, because some of you want tangible things. Stop and start wasn't enough for you. So here's the tangible thing I ask you to do. Put this in the yap, I think, to do. I can't remember if I did or not. Maybe do it with your family. If not, do it, do it with the kids. For a week, give a devotional guide or something like that. I've got some in the back we use from, from Radical. People made radical decisions to read the Bible all the way through, or, or some of us that said, hey, I don't want to read Genesis through Revelation in, in 15 months. That's just, it's a whole lot of reading. I want to I read slower and, and get more detail when I read. So we got these devotional guides. If you're behind, quite honestly, I mean, we're almost halfway through. If you can read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and halfway through Matthew, you'll be caught up to that, that 
pace. It's really not that difficult. We have those devotional things. Whatever you use, as, you're, as you are reading God's Word, get out a, a notebook. Take it with you here on Sunday mornings or when you go to worship here in a second. And, and, and you can take notes. That, that's great. But one thing you need to write down is, what is God saying to me? Ask God, God, what do you want me to do with this? And when, it, when he tells you, and you sense him going, you need to do this, write it down. And then here's the revolutionary thing. Do it. Do it. Find some accountability. Tell somebody, man, this is going to be hard. I've got to do this. God is calling me to do it. And I don't know how, but you know what? Blessings come from obedience. And ramifications come from disobedience. I'm going to read you one last passage of Scripture, and I'm going to give you a few minutes to talk. If you go to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, the books of Chronicles 1 and 2, they, if you've read 1 and 2 Kings, Chronicles duplicates a lot of that. It's, a, it's the story of the kings of Israel, but it's written at a much later time, so it's got a little bit different perspective. But it kind of sums up the periods of these, these divided kingdoms. It sums up the period of time where Elijah and Elisha lived. And at the very end of it, in chapter 36, verse 15, this is right before Jerusalem is captured and burned. That's the lower. Israel got defeated, then Judah. Second Chronicles 36, 15 says this, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Man, let that not be said of us. But some of us have had some she-bears come out of the woods in the last year. They've been warnings from God. Some of us have had some prophets come along People who have spoken the word of God to us. And most of us have enough civility not to have, when somebody said a word from God to them, and go, whatever, Baldy. But we've mocked and scoffed and said, pass. Just remember, the message that, that God has for us, understand, is that blessings come from obedience and there are ramifications for disobedience. And you and I, as free moral agents, get to choose God's way or our way. But we are now without excuse and without complaint. Let me pray for us.